Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 24, All Work and No Play Makes Quoth a Dull Boy, where we will be taking a look at chapters 51 and 52 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of outlets. As a refresher, each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, As you should know by now, our discussions are going to naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you are a radical anarchist who cares not for the strictures of spoiler warnings. Either way, beyond this point, there will be spoilers. I like that one. (laughs) Also, a word to our community. While it is perfectly fine to critique the text as written, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. So at this point, it is time for our 45-second recap of the week. Now, you might remember that last week I was overly ambitious and tried to stuff an entire four pages worth of recap into 45 seconds and... I did not make it. Well, normally that would mean that I would be eating raspberries on a video this week and showing it to you all on YouTube, but the audio for it will have to wait. Because Will, you forgot to buy raspberries, didn't you? I'm going to blame that on the exigencies of the global food supply chain right now. So we're relying on Amazon. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll eventually get you the audio in a future episode. I promise I will eat something with raspberries. Probably Pop-Tarts. And I'm going to like it. And then you get a box of raspberry Pop-Tarts. Right, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, as I was saying, it is time for our 45-second recap of the week. And this time it is Will's turn. Yep. Do you have a timer ready? Oh, flip. I do not. Oh, look. One has appeared in front of me. All right. In three, two, one, go. Kvothe takes too many classes and works too many shifts, for he has not enough ashes, and his focus slowly drifts. While Sovoy takes bets on Kvothe's sympathetic duel, the young prodigy has set his own body for fuel. Will and Sim intervene, and have Kelvin kick him out. While Kvothe feels rather lean, of this there's no doubt. So Kvothe practices loot on the rooftop of Muse, while a mysterious listener scoots Kvothe's attention, they eschew. So where does our trooper go to find for his soul an exfoliant? Why, by now we all know he needs the Aeolian. Cute. (laughs) 
That was very cute. <laughs> also, 28 seconds. Score. <laughs> you did very well. I thought you might like that one. I do. That's an interesting rhyme for the Aeolian. <laughs> Maybe not the most meaningful or even the truest, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. I thought you might think so. You do not have to eat any of the cherry Pop-Tarts that you got for me. They're all for you. They are. And I may have insisted that the punishment be raspberry Pop-Tarts because A, you actually like them and will eat them. And B, you bought another box of Pop-Tarts that I don't get if you don't get raspberry Pop-Tarts. And that would be strawberry. And that would be a travesty. <laughs> I love you. Aw. I love you too. Sorry, podcast audience. Time to vomit again. Hope you got your buckets. Because it's cute in here. So, with that out of the way... <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about our chapters and our lens. So we chose outlets as our lens, and that's mostly as a strategy for dealing with burnout, which I think is something that Kvothe is really struggling with in this chapter. I wouldn't say in this chapter, I would say in this section, because at the end of the section, he is about to drop from exhaustion. Definitely. And burnout is something that affects everyone, no matter how smart you are, no matter how talented you are, no matter how much energy you have, there is a burnout point that everyone hits eventually. And it doesn't matter if you are doing things that you enjoy or things that you absolutely dread. I know for myself, my most recent and very severe experience with burnout happened in 2017. I had started classes at DigiPen, which has an earned reputation for being insanely difficult, but DigiPen regularly expects students to take upwards of 20 to 22 credits a semester. And to me especially, the coding classes were extremely challenging. The game design classes where we were expected to teach ourselves how to use the game engine. I went through DigiPen in four years. I had enough credits from previous college experience that I essentially got one semester's worth of credits transferred. So it reduced my class load, but it didn't reduce it by a whole lot. And afterward, I had a day off between graduation and starting work on my first game at the game studio that I wound up working at. So after a couple of years and a project that was winding down for my department, I shut down hard and I quit. And I took a year off before I started looking for other avenues and other ways to take care of that itch, that drive to making a project. And then when I did decide I wanted to have a project, it took me a long time to get back into a swing where I could get a regular routine for a project. And now you're listening to it. As someone who works in IT operations, I deal with burnout management 
on a daily basis. It's literally part of our job. We work grueling hours and we oftentimes have to figure out ways to provide coverage for events worldwide that may happen at odd hours and with not a whole lot of backup. And burnout management is functionally the job of every single person who is working. They have to find their own ways to cope with it. I mean, a large part of that boils down to finding things that you can do while you're off the clock that are actually going to renew you and help return energy as opposed to take it away. And that is something that Kvothe is really discovering in this part of the book. He's taking a lot of difficult classes that are demanding of time, energy, and concentration, and he is not doing a whole lot of sleeping or recovering or doing the social maintenance required to maintain his relationships. Those things that would otherwise help restore some of his energy. And as a result, he's being run ragged. I'm reminded of the famous Ron Swanson quote, Nope, if given the choice between half ashing two things and whole ashing one thing, always whole ash one thing. Fun thing about the word half-ashed. So initially that was talking about wood carving. There is a tool called an ADZE, A-D-Z-E, I believe. Yep. And especially with things like fireplace mantles. The ADZE does finishing work, makes everything look really nice, makes it look professionally done. And initially the people making these would use the ads on all surfaces that were on the mantle. So including the thing that is going to be shoved up against the wall and adhered to the wall. And so after a while, it became quite obvious that no one was ever going to see the side that was shoved up against the wall. So a less time-consuming practice of half adsing became what happened it's less expensive, less time-consuming, but also less quality. Hence, half-ashed. And for the record, I thought it was my turn for an interesting fact. You just burned one. <laughs> Is that one of yours? Nope. Okay. You just burned one of yours. You... No, I just knew that off the top of my head. I didn't need to actually have that as, a, as an interesting fact at the end of one of the podcasts. <laughs> it's one of my favorite random facts. All I'm saying is you could have saved that one. I could have, but it was applicable. <laughs> I also want to point out something that you touched on. Building those personal relationships, having an outlet of friends or family that you can trust, those social connections. And especially in this time where it's so difficult because we can't be in a social situation like normal, like we would have. You know, our weekly friends gathering got abruptly canceled. And I have had very little social interaction since this whole thing started. Now, I'm taken to really liking some of the conversations I've been having on Twitter with other podcasts, but it's not quite the same. But having that social connection helps. I know while I was in DigiPen, I wound up meeting one of my friends who became my work spouse. It started off with me asking him for help 
with classes that I was in that he'd already taken. And then it turned into we were in the same classes a lot together. And the same thing happens with you. You have a work spouse. I adore her. <laughs> and I think it's important to have someone you have that really good social connection with while you're at work to help you blow off some of that steam. I didn't have that at the game studio I worked at, and that wore on me a lot. A good work partner that you can trust, that you know will have your back, makes a huge difference. At every job I've worked at, I've been fortunate to have someone that I can trust like that, that fills sort of that spouse role where we lean on each other to carry our respective loads. It means a lot. And, you know, Kvothe is a really smart kid. He's obviously got a lot of natural talent, but his inability to see the value of human relationships really hamstrings his ability to truly flourish. Again, Willem and Simon are being far better friends to him than he is to them. They are looking at his workload, they're looking at his energy levels and the type of quality that he's able to give to them as far as time goes. And they're accurately diagnosing that, yeah, at this rate, you're not going to last. So I think it's about time where we try to go through everything as it comes to us in these chapters, rather than cherry picking the parts that we're talking about, although I think that they're important. We get a um, mildly confusing explanation of why it is better to use mortar for holding bricks together than it is to use sigildry. I think that there is a little bit of astute observation in this that we can take and apply to other things. There are multiple ways to do many things. Oftentimes it is very tempting in an engineering field to try and reinvent the wheel. Over-engineering is a real thing. But there's a reason that the wheel has worked for as long as it has. And reinventions don't really end up serving much purpose other than overcomplicating matters and introducing new flaws where there were none before. So while Quoth is right, yes, you could theoretically do a very effective means of binding multiple bricks together using sigildry, it would require more work and more specialist knowledge for not too much more gain than just using simple mortar. I kind of take this as being, you know how sometimes there are those unitaskers in the kitchen, like an avocado tool that is only useful for avocados and usually isn't useful for avocados instead of just using a knife and a spoon. Sometimes it is better to use the knife and the spoon. Sometimes those simple things that are done the old way have gotten to be the old way because they've worked so well for so long. <laughs> and the keep it simple stupid principle applies to so much of this. Anyway, let's move off of the first half of the page. <laughs> I want to apologize. At one point, a couple of episodes ago, I said that Kmar doesn't show up again. I was wrong. Kmar shows up in this next half of a page. And honestly, I don't remember him being there much after that. But maybe he's more important than I think he is. I don't know. 
all of this is ways for Quoth to be self-aggrandizing and say, well, other people aren't as driven as I am and they aren't as desperate as he is. Come on, let's be real. So he kind of insults everyone else by saying, I was driven and I was brilliant. And then lastly, I was lucky, plain and simple. Maybe that last one has a lot more weight than he wants to give it. Also, he spends more time just saying he was brilliant and driven without actually demonstrating it, so... He does a lot of the tell, not show. It's a common trope when you have to write a character who is supposed to be smarter than you are. Let's go on to some of the more interesting things. I like how Mains is described. It's like the overworld version of the Underthing a little bit. It's sprawling and weird, and it seems like a lot of the university has been taken apart and rebuilt, whether it be Mains physically being taken apart and rebuilt, the Underthing, which may have been a university or a city underneath the university, which it has been brought to my attention Wondering if that's mere terrenial. Just a thought. Gonna leave that one there. And then <laughs> also the archives, the organizational system being taken apart and rebuilt constantly by different people. I kind of like the jumbled things make no sense way that these are talked about. Yeah, it kind of feels like how... If you drive up and down I-5, there is always construction on I-5. It kind of makes me wonder about if you have a boat and you take it apart piece by piece and put it back together piece by piece. Is it the same boat? <laughs> There's a little of that and it kind of evolves and sprawls and goes in mazes. And locks off an entire courtyard that can be seen but not accessed. Except it can be accessed. Mostly by Ari. So Quoth taking some lessons from his time in Tarbian, which I remind you was only a couple of months ago, climbs up on the roof of Mainz above this secluded courtyard that I think kind of has a romantic feel. Yeah, it's got a bench and an apple tree, which it's weird to me that there's a bench in there because there's not really a direct access to it that most students would have the ability to get to. I think that the bench was probably there before the building got put around. How it didn't decay, I don't know. Could have been stonework, who knows. I would have to assume it was stone. Or it's magic, because this is the university. <laughs> we get our first narrative glimpse of Ari, who is one of my favorite characters. So while Quoth is on the roof, he saw the sun slip out from behind the clouds. This whole idea of him sitting on the roof with the sun coming out and golden light covering the rooftop is so beautiful when I imagine it. But I'd like to point out that after having read or reread The Slow Regard of Silent Things really recently, while Ari is very connected to the moon, there's also a lot of sun imagery written around her. So the sun slipped out from behind the clouds, and then he heard a noise. And then he goes down to check on the noise, and it was quickly growing dark. The light was fading. Interesting. Something to think about. 
Side note, if you haven't listened to entirely the right sort of podcast, we were on it talking about Ari a couple weeks back. Though we are currently recording on the day it comes out. (laughs) There's a little bit of a mystery around who is lifting the drainage grate, who had the apple stored somewhere that wasn't right under the tree. All of these little tiny hints that we won't get fulfilled until a couple of chapters from now. I think it'll be next episode when we are actually introduced to Ari. And then we get the closest that we've seen to lyrics for one of the tunes that Quoth knows. The tune is used to help him memorize his runes, which is a common tactic for people who are a little more creatively minded that can't remember lists without some sort of form to it but you can remember a song i mean this is why tom lair's the element song has stuck in my head for all these years (laughs) so before we can get a resolution on the mystery of who in the heck is in the courtyard sixth bell rings and the sound startled me from my reverie get another seven word sentence At the end of this chapter, we do get a discussion about how Foth is going to be studying and apprenticing under Manette. But the way that Manette is described is a little odd to me because it's as though we weren't supposed to remember what happened 100 pages ago. That may be an artifact of editing. That's kind of what I figure. It just feels out of place because Manette is a character that we get to see more than we've seen Denna. And yet there's a reference to Denna later on that doesn't remind us who Denna is. So, I don't know. And here we get to chapter 52, which is called Burning, which probably should just be called Burnout. So, in a kind of list format, Foth starts telling us how many hours a day were being taken up by his classes, and all I could think was 1 plus 1 plus 2 plus 1, not 1 plus 2 plus 1 plus 1. If anyone knows that reference, tweet at us. But regardless, he is working so much at his classes at the fishery for pay, which is barely sustaining his ability to eat and have loot strings, because that's an essential. I said that derisively, except I actually do believe that it was essential for him. That actually brings something interesting here, because his loot practice is really the only thing that he does for its own sake for himself. He works in the artificery for money. He works in the medica because he just wants to learn more, and because he's been told that he's good at it. He's taking all of these classes because they're what he needs to get to the next level. But we don't get a sense that he has any real passion for these things intrinsically. Whereas his loot is the only real unstructured thing that he has that is just for him. It's the kind of thing that he needs to do to be himself. And I think that's part of what's so potent about the contrast between Quoth as the stories depict him and Cote, the innkeeper, who doesn't have really any music in his life who doesn't have this fundamental part of him. This part that is purely an expression of self and done for its own sake. When everything is pragmatic and has to be serving a a specific need, 
it's very easy to overlook those things that are essential to just being the person you need to be. And this happens more, I'd say, when there is societal pressure or monetary pressure, especially if you are in an economically depressed state, it is very hard to allow yourself those outlets. And as I had spoken about DigiPen, I always was better when I had had some time away from the stress, away from a 16 hour day of coding, when I took a break, when I came back to things refreshed or renewed. And I can remember one specific time where you saw that I was going nuts and I couldn't deal with it any longer. I couldn't barrel through something. And I remember that I was in a 3D modeling class and about four or five other classes at the same time. And I was hitting a wall. And you looked at me and said, would you like to just go out the Bellevue Art Museum has this thing going on. How about we go and just stare at pretty things and cool things for a couple of hours today instead of a whole bunch of looping if-then statements. Rather than trying to pick at the knot that you have created, let's go look at other people's creations and see if you get some inspiration. And I did. And I made one of my 3D modeling projects after a thing that we saw at the museum. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have known what to do. I would have gone nuts just trying to find something if I hadn't gotten out of the house. And music is kind of the same way. I was having a day where I was really keyed up recently and I needed to take some time. And I have since started learning how to play Zelda's theme from Ocarina of Time on the piano and doing something so drastically different than the thing I ought to be doing or think that I need to just one more try at this. Let's try over and over and over again and I'm hitting into a wall. Taking yourself out of that situation, extremely hard, but it's also extremely necessary. I remember when I was in college, if I were to compare how well I did on something where I pulled an all-nighter versus where I saw that I was hitting a wall and then went and took a nap or just slept and then woke up early and finished it in the morning, I always did better finishing it in the morning than I did trying to power through the night. Me too. I never pulled an all-nighter. The closest I got was staying up till about midnight. Ultimately, though, if I went to bed, if I took myself out of a situation, went to bed, and woke up at four in the morning and continued working on something and finished it then, it was a million times better than trying to stay up till two or three and then catch a couple hours of sleep. And that's one of the secrets of burn management. While it's tempting to think that each hour is worth the same amount of time, the fact is, it isn't. <laughs> You can put all the time in the world, but if you're not putting good time in, it's not actually going to be effective. And so you need those outlets to help get you more of the good time. Another thing to note on burn management is knowing what time you are most productive. For me, my most productive time is usually between about 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., though I can also be productive before breakfast. The times that I am practically useless 
are about 2 p.m. to about 6. There's something to be said for knowing what your actual circadian rhythms allow. It's not unusual, I think, to find that 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. period to be particularly fallow. And trying to get things done during that time is not the most helpful thing in the world. This is why sometimes I worked from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. I know that it's not always possible to control when you are at work, and you may be on the hook for being there during times that are less productive for you, but yeah, burnout management means that you have to recognize when you're going to be less productive and then give yourself the grace to handle that. Going on, we see that Quoth has been doing this for at least the equivalent of two months for us. Somewhere around my fifth span, I began to show definite signs of wear. I think it had to have been showing well before that point because he wasn't sleeping. He was working 12 to 15 hours a day. He was practicing loot another couple hours a day, which he did instead of sleeping. <laughs> he barely ate. None of this is good. None of this is virtuous. Running yourself ragged for the sake of your pride. No. A lot of this, I think, is a case of him being penny-wise and pound-foolish. He knows the value of an hour, but he thinks that that hour is the same value that all hours have. The raw number of hours is not a measure of quality. It's the quality of each individual hour spent. And he hasn't been able to really dedicate quality hours to anything because he's spending his energy all over the place. He's not remotely focused on a single goal. He's like, I just need to do everything. So then we get his next interaction with Sim and Will. He takes a perverse pleasure in seeing other people's reaction to him sitting under the pennant pole where he was whipped. Again, pride is a foolish thing. But I can understand that particular impulse because sometimes I take a perverse pleasure for doing something that is not societally determined to be normal. At one point I wore, I think the actual term for them is bondage pants. Very, very wide leg canvas pants with chains and a crap ton of pockets. Children were shied away from me by their parents. I don't know. I didn't think I looked that scary. <laughs> Will is saying I didn't. You weren't that scary at all. And I mean, to be fair, it was a style that, for those of you on the younger side, they were really big in the late 90s and early aughts. Yeah. By the time you were wearing them, they were no longer as popular or as common. But they also still weren't very popular amongst most normals, quote. They were still transgressive in the 90s. But it amused me that without knowing anything about me, and mind you, I had my out-of-a-box red hair color that wasn't too transgressive. Like, it was mostly a graphic tee and bondage pants because I liked them. Yeah, sometimes my fashion choices that get me stared at or avoided in public make me laugh. And so I can understand where Quoth is kind of coming from on this. 
But then we see him being a very, very bad friend. <laughs> While Will and Sim are teasing him, trying to figure out what's wrong, and insinuating that he's got a girlfriend that's taking up all of his time, and that's why they don't get to see him. To be fair, they don't know her. She's from Canada. They've never met her. She goes to a different school. <laughs> right. Uh, she's also a loot. Anyway. <laughs> so they're trying to ferret out what's wrong, and he goes, I couldn't think of anything to say. Again, with the seven words. And also... Very uncharacteristic of Quoth. Who is always proud to say that he has something to say. <laughs> yes. But he makes it clear that he is aware that he was neglecting his friends even more than he was neglecting himself. That social connection, again, is very, very important. As we go on, there is a statement here that says, if you cannot understand why I couldn't bring myself to tell them that I was flat broke, then I doubt that you have ever been truly poor. I have been down to my last $25, wasn't going to get paid for two weeks, and run out of food. Now, I didn't borrow money from people. I probably should have tried. But people knew... I don't like this statement, is what I'm saying. It does feel like he's trying to get overly defensive about it. He's also kind of judgy. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm this poor and I'm this desperate, and if you don't act the way that I act while I am this poor and this desperate, then you are not worthy of anybody's sympathy ever. Yeah. But I will say, honestly... If you are in a situation where it is this terrible, it is okay to reach out for a social safety net for what society tells you. One of the most destructive self-deceptions that people get into is this belief that if they don't have money coming in, that they are not able to spend time with their friends. Or that if they do anything that is just for themselves, that it is somehow being selfish and that they don't have the right to do so until they have money. Or that they shouldn't rely on their friends to pay their way for things. We've been on the other end of this, where we've had friends that didn't have an income at the time. And I wanted to hang out with them so bad, and we were fine. We were able to support ourselves and we were able to pay our way and the three of theirs. I wanted to go to a movie with them and they didn't want to tell me that they didn't have the money for the movie. And we're like, hey, we'll pick it up. When you're in a better spot, you can pick up a check here and there too. Spending time with people doesn't necessarily even have to entail spending money with them. So he's spending all of his time doing all of these things that he thinks will bring in money or take care of his need to progress, figuring that there is not really a tomorrow. And that mentality is preventing him from laying the groundwork to build a tomorrow. And part of that means, hey, just spending time with friends. Doing something as simple as going for a walk with Will and Sim or spending time in the dorm rooms together or just... You know, having that bonding time to really talk 
and to be vulnerable and to grow a connection with another person, it doesn't require money. It doesn't require you doing things that will require you to spend money. Sometimes it's as simple as just being there and talking. And this scene of them at the pennant pole is one of the few times that they've actually had. After a little bit, it's obvious that Quoth is getting uncomfortable and he has to flat out say, really, there isn't a girl. And Willem says, I think we've been missing something here. And they spend about half a page bantering back and forth about how Quoth is a new student. Look at what we've been missing. He looks like he hasn't slept in a span of days. And as an aside, almost ignoring Quoth, but talking about him in front of him, Will goes, how long do you think he has? They have figured out that he is running himself ragged. And the fact that it took two months to figure this out. Yes, they're better friends than Quoth is, but... <laughs> to be fair, they're also not getting to see him very much. And to be fair, they're also very busy. And I think the structure that Will and Sim used to break this all down, talking about Quoth as if he's not there, is probably the best way to get Quoth to actually take it seriously. Because I noticed that Quoth doesn't really listen very much when people talk to him, but he does listen when they talk about him. If he feels like he's eavesdropping, he'll actually absorb that information. But if he feels like they're talking to him, he just lets it go in one ear and out the other. That's a good point. It's also kind of comical imagining what's happening. On to a part that I forgot was even in this book and I thought was actually in the Weissman Sphere. <laughs> because I thought that his advanced sympathy class would not have been in his second term. I thought it would have been when he came back from Ventus. But we get Chekhov's binder shells in this section. There's a little bit of a preface on here about Elksadol. He still reminded me of a stereotypical evil magician. <laughs> I like that one a lot. Mostly because he reminds you of that as well. So that tells you that that image has been painted really well with Patrick Rothfuss's words. He's always described as a grand vizier. <laughs> <laughs> Elksadol apparently teaches with a flourish. He has showmanship. All of these things appeal to Kvothe. He's easily impressed by the show rather than the substance. And Kvothe, again, self-aggrandizing. I was the top of the class. And he's in a class with Savoy, which tells you that he's skipped a few. <laughs> and there's a competition, kind of a dueling with their mind, where we get more of an explanation of what sympathy is and how it works and how you have to split your mind into pieces. The exact blow by blow doesn't really interest me that much. Though there is a little section where Quoth asks Savoy to bet on the performance and he uses his last two jots as collateral on this. And then he almost loses everything. His reputation, his standing in the class, his money, because he, again, with that whole showmanship thing, is doing something wildly inadvisable. 
to further cement his reputation. And then things don't go quite his way, and his stomach dropped because he hadn't expected that Elksadal would give his opponent an advantage, even though, you know, top of the class, trying to unseat him, all that other stuff. And ultimately, it's that advantage that means that the odds go further against him, which means that his bet is worth more if he succeeds. But everything is very clumsily, I was going to fail. I'm not going to succeed at this. This is not going to be okay. And then, of course, Quoth is going to win. Quoth is telling the story. <laughs> Essentially, he does a rope-a-dope. Explain. Rope-a-dope was the strategy that Muhammad Ali would use against George Foreman in the famous Thrilla in Manila and Rumble in the Jungle, where he would let George Foreman throw all the punches first, and he would take the hits, and then wait for George Foreman to tire himself out, and then he would come out swinging, and then in the final round, knock him out. I understand where you're coming from, but it seems like both of them are actually just pushing against each other, the same force, and Quoth isn't being patient and letting the other person wear themselves out. That would be smarter, I think, than what actually happens. They're both pushing against each other. Their source has to be from their own heat. And it seems that Kvothe is doing the things correctly, where you're supposed to take your heat from your extremities first. Yeah, because the other guy was using his own blood as his heat source. Which took all of the heat equally from his body and sent him into hypothermia, because he reduced his body heat by 8 or 9 degrees. So afterwards, we get the consequences of all of this, because even as Kvoth manages to hide his own binders, chills, and the severe pain that is the result, even as he succeeded, Elksadal seems to have a better measure of what happened. He's not going to beat Kvoth over the head with it, but he does let him know that it's not really serving him any purpose to try and lie in front of him. And you kind of get the sense that no matter how good you are, no matter how much skill you have, you still have a battery, and that battery has limits. And once you hit those limits, no matter how big those might be, you will feel consequences, and you have to be mindful of that. There is a thing called the spoon theory, where if you imagine all of your energy for doing tasks and just kind of being as spoonfuls of energy, and how many spoonfuls of said energy you use on any given part of your day. Something unexpected comes up and you wind up having to expend more of your energy than you had expected. It's not like that is magically going to recuperate. You have to do something to get it back. The two of us don't use the spoon theory as such. We refer to it as spell slots. It works out better for us because it also has the analogy of cantrips. Whereas when you don't have any energy, what you can still do to function, those things that you don't need to expend a spell slot for. If we're out somewhere or, you know, in the before times when we were out somewhere like at your parents and you would hit the wall of, I am really tired and I have been expending all my energy on being on, I have a cantrip to be able to drive us home that maybe you do not. And when we're both really drained 
that's when my anxiety gets kind of bad. And your cantrips include being able to absorb that anxiety and not be reactive. It's not necessarily one that is flashy, but it is what helps us move past the anxiety so that the anxiety and the tiredness don't define us. You get kind of derpy otherwise, but you don't react by snapping back or rising to the anxiety levels. I don't respond in kind and I don't escalate because that doesn't solve problems <laughs> in this case. In most cases. Again, though, Quoth is more concerned about his reputation than he is necessarily about even his own health, which I think is incredibly detrimental. He's not going to survive well doing that. No one would. The other thing is he's so concerned about having this perfect reputation that he thinks that anything less than perfect must be an absolute mark of shame. And sometimes you get so caught up in a detail that you can't see what's going on around you or when you should quit. I had that situation where I was taking one too many classes on one of my semesters. I wanted so badly to prove that I could do it, that I could take seven classes at once, which was so stupid, so stupid, so, so, so stupid. Because the most I'd ever actually done was six and that was still stupid. Ultimately, by having that one too many expenditures, I was not only failing at that one extra expenditure, I was failing at all of my expenditures. I didn't have enough to spread to all of the other bits. It's like not enough butter spread over too much toast. That feeling where everything is spread so thin that no one thing actually gets done to your satisfaction. And even though you're just doing everything kinda okay, you're not doing anything in any way that you're actually proud of. And at this point, Kvothe hits the wall. Suddenly I realized how weary I was. So many seven word sentences in this section. <laughs> so to wrap up this section, we return to Will and Sim. And for this little section, Kvothe almost earns a Fernemos, but it's Kvothe, so no. But <laughs> Both realizes that Will and Sim have gone to talk to Kilvin because Kilvin has forbidden him from doing extra work in the fishery. And instead of, no, you may not learn any extra things. No, you may not work for me to pay you. I can understand why Kvothe would be angry about this, except he just earned a whole bunch of money for doing something stupid. <laughs> and what would have earned him a Fernemos from me, or a recognition as Fernemos from me, is that while he was furious, instead of going and just yelling at Sim or Will, he had gone to the rooftop of Mains and played his lute to cool his head. His music calms him, and he thought things through while he played. The music really does make him better. And again, it's him doing that thing that is just for him, that helps him to sort things out in his life, helps him to figure out where his real priorities are, and helps him to recognize when someone is doing him a kindness. 
I really do like that because there are going to be times where your anger boils up. But if you can do something else besides dwell on your anger or be reactive and take it out on people that either don't deserve it or don't deserve the full force of it, like you shouldn't fire hose on somebody just because you're overly stressed. I think that that was a really good way for him to take care of himself. And also probably one of the most kind things he's done for his friends once he also realizes that they have done him a kindness. Yeah, he goes back and talks with them and they're really happy to see him. I don't know why. Well, it's because <laughs> they're good friends and they care about him. I don't know why they've chosen to care about him, but they do. That's what I mean. <laughs> Maybe it's the same way that we care about our cat. Maybe. <laughs> they think of him like our youngest pod kitten, Sokka, who is... Well, we adopted him, and he's ours now. Even though he can be a little jerk, we still love him. And we do enjoy seeing him, even as he drives us up the wall at 4.30 in the morning. He really likes to take books off the bookshelf. Maybe he's trying to recommend we read those. That may be. He just is really excited to give us a book recommendation. <laughs> so at the end, we get our little taste of the Aeolian being mentioned again. Second time. And it's clear, I think, that Quoth is starting to get a sense that he needs to do some stuff in his life that are just for him. That he needs to have these things that are purely rejuvenative, even if they may seem frivolous. And with that, it is time to move on. I believe we have segued nicely to our Phronemus of the Week. It's your turn, so who do you got? Elksadal. Okay. If for no other reason than his little lecture or wrap-up at the end of the class. He asks his students to explain to him why Fenton wound up having to spend 15-20 minutes getting his blood warmed back up. He asked his students what would have been safe and gently corrects them when they were wrong. He asks his students how much they believe Fenton actually used. Eight or nine degrees? is a lot. Depends also very much if they're talking Celsius or if they're talking Fahrenheit. If it's Celsius, oh, that's terrible. But he says, better you should know your honest limit than overguess your ability and lose control. One thing I love here at the end is his last little line where he says, you're welcome to at any time. We're both sympathists. Because he's one of the few people in the book who uses sympathy in both senses of the word. Not just in the in-world magic system, but also in the sense that he is sympathetic to the people around him. He doesn't come across as being overly judgmental of his students when they make mistakes. He points out an error gently and with kindness. And positions things not as, oh, you failed, but these are things that could hurt you if you get them wrong. I want you to get them right because I want you to be successful, to be happy, to be healthy. I care about your well-being. I care about you as a person as opposed to a cog in a machine. Yeah, and we'll see that also in uh, Wise Man's Fear. He has that same actual sympathy towards Kvothe's situation and his well-being that asks Kvothe to challenge himself, to push himself outside of a comfort zone, to get out of a groove. 
much the same way that you did when you said, hey, do you want to go to the Bellevue Art Museum? Yeah, when you started mentioning there was this one time, I knew exactly what you were talking about because I was thinking of that same instance too. <sighs> it's almost like we have a shared mind occasionally. And then other times you finish my sandwiches. And they're very good sandwiches. Thank you for letting me finish them. <laughs> Even if they were supposed to be sentences. <laughs> All right. So now we come to our interesting fact of the week. So today, for our interesting fact, we're going to be talking about the linguistic origins of the phrase P-U. <laughs> I don't remember why we were talking about this, but we were mentioning something smelled, I don't know, and Will just says P-U, and I was wondering why we say that. I think it was cat poop. Anyway, <laughs> reasonable people can disagree over what, but either way, we started wondering about this, so I decided that it would be a good thing to look up. <laughs> so it turns out that the phrase P-U isn't actually an abbreviation for two words beginning with P and U. It's merely the phonetic rendering of an exclamation that people make when they smell something bad. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the exclamation has been spelled many different ways since it first appeared in 1604. P-U-E-P-U-H, P-E-U-G-H, P-E-U-G-H, P-Y-O-O, P-U, and P-E-W, P-U. And so even though it's pronounced P-U, it's often stretched into two syllables for emphasis in P-U. And so while that p.u. is not listed as one of the spellings, it seems pretty certain to us that the initials represent this two-syllable pronunciation. The OED uses the pew spelling to describe an exclamation of contempt, disgust, or derision. It doesn't specifically mention the disgust caused by a bad smell, though that's typically how we hear the exclamation used in modern parlance. Though that's how the most recent OED citation defines the term. For some reason, they haven't, however, used few, P-H-E-U, which is used to express impatience, disgust, weariness, discomfort, or, more often now, relief. And we shouldn't also confuse it with poo, P-O-O-H, which was first recorded in 1600 as an expression of impatience, contempt, or disdain. However, it sometimes is used like poo to show disgust at an unpleasant smell, as in this 2004 citation from The Guardian, which was, Poo, that smells a bit off. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you say? Well, considering I wanted to know this as of this morning, find it very interesting. Awesome. No cherries. Yes. As a plus, I get to keep all of my Pop-Tarts. And as a plus, I get to let you keep all your Pop-Tarts. <laughs> Alrighty. Now it's time for seven words. I believe you have the book this week? I do. Now earlier you said something to the effect of you're welcome to it any time. You didn't explain what it was, but I'm about to. Thanks for the use of your fire. That's a pretty good one. And mine is... Dune is the answer. It always was. <laughs> when 
asking what book you should read next. That was one of the options you've listed, and I have been asking you to read that for a long time now, and now you're finally getting around to it, and so I'm very happy about this. So I will admit to every once in a while when I get to the end of one of the many books that I am in the middle of, I get to that book hangover. I had it recently with finishing The Starless Sea, and then more recently I just finished the Night Vale book, The Faceless Old Woman Who Secretly Lives in Your Home, which not sponsored, not at all, but I would highly recommend it even if you are not someone who is up to date or has ever listened to the Welcome to Night Vale podcast. It was a very good book, very weird, but you should expect that because it was written by Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink. So, but I got done with it and I was just in that, but now I need another audiobook to listen to and I have downloaded a whole ton of them. So here's a photo of the ones that I haven't listened to. Hey, Twitter, tell me what I should actually listen to. And Will piped up first. <laughs> This happens every once in a while. It will show up on our at Waystone Pod Twitter. I will gladly take your book recommendations. I'm glad for this. And I'm glad you're finally taking one of mine. I've taken lots of yours. Who made me read Game of Thrones? How many years ago was that? Uh, how long have we been together? About 10 years. About 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so... I do occasionally take your book recommendations, and you take mine, which is why you've read The Name of the Wind multiple times now. Well, I think with that, I'd like to say thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you all for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Especially all of our new listeners. We got a huge bump a couple weeks back from somebody posting about us on Reddit. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who not only started listening to us, I think, on episode 18, but is still around for episode whatever we're on right now. 24. 24. <laughs> Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we look at chapters 53 through 55 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of performances. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring together. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, you're welcome to follow us on the socials at WaystonePod on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Sorry, podcast audience. Time to vomit again. Hope you got your buckets, because it's cute in here. <laughs> That's not going to sound good on audio. No, of <laughs> course it's not. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one who's going to have to edit all that. So. Who said I'm editing it out? You're going to have to listen to it. I know. <laughs> so are our audience, probably.
At the very least, it might be the outtake. Thanks. That was lovely in my ears. <laughs> he started it. Ah. <sighs>